Welcome to Drop Everything Podcast number 62. I'm your host, Dan Holzman, and we have a wonderful guest on this podcast, a good friend of mine, the man they call the Zaniac, Alex Zerby, very popular at schools, fairs, and festivals around the Northwest, and a great guy. So before we get to Alex, though, let's thank our main sponsor, only one sponsor in this podcast, but it's the most important sponsor there is, the IJA, International Jugglers Association. Information about this great group of jugglers can be found at juggle.org. All right, strap yourself in, prepare yourself, drop everything, get ready for Alex Zerby. Welcome to Drop Everything Podcast number 62, my special guest, a great entertainer, a human cartoon, sometimes known as the Zaniac. Please welcome Alex Zerby. Welcome, Alex. Hey, how's it going, Dan? Good, good, good. Now, you live in... uh, in Seattle, in the Northwest, am I right? Yeah, I well, I grew up in Seattle, and I currently live in Olympia, the state capital, about an hour south of there. And you're a family man. You have a couple of kids. What What are your ages of your kids and their names and your wife and all that stuff? Yeah, yeah, I'm married. I've been I've been married. It'll be uh, 20 years. Not that we've been married, but that we've been together. Next month, we're coming up on 20 years being together, which is pretty cool. And I got a nine and 11 year old daughter. Yeah, they're pretty cool, you know, Amelie and Jillian. Are they juggling yet? Is it too early, or have they expressed interest? Um, a little bit. Uh, I think Amelie has gotten maybe like, she's maybe gotten like six catches or something, maybe eight catches, but the, she's not really, she doesn't care. She's not interested. They can both do the rollable, though. They can both do the balance board. Moving forward, do you think you would encourage your kids to get into juggling or performing as a profession? Do you think that's a, a bright future in those areas? If they wanted to, yeah, sure. I, I'm, I'm honestly surprised that more people don't do this for a living just because, gosh, the other options out there seem a little rough. Yeah. I mean, as far as like real jobs or, yeah. or something you have to do where you're not enjoying it or. Totally. Look, it's still work and there's still stuff that's not fun about it. And and it's not for everybody. If you don't have the personality that's going to be that's going to enjoy that, then don't do it. But for me, it seems great. See, I don't know why. I'm surprised. I'm shocked that more people don't do this. Well, then the bar is not set that high as far as the need for some kind of college degree, a huge right. amount of money invested in schooling. The props are certainly not that expensive. What do you think? Is it just people don't realize it or they're just not interested? What, what keeps people from doing it? I think as far as the juggling goes, I think it's the um, it's the fact that you. I think it's really hard to learn the juggling skills necessary not impossible, but I think it's hard if you don't actually like learning those tricks. I think if you were just like, I'm just going to learn it to make a living, that's more of like a magician thing. You know? yeah. Whereas yeah. like, if you want to learn the juggling skills you need for a juggling show, you kind of have to like want to learn the tricks just for the sake of learning them, I, th- I think. Yeah, I think if you went to someone with no interest in juggling and said, look, here's a great career for you. Learn to juggle, learn to ride the unicycle, learn these tricks, and I can teach you the business end of it. I think the interest has to come first. I think so, yeah. Well, let's talk about the young Alex Zerby then. Yeah, sure. Uh, as a kid, what, what were you interested in? Were you interested in the circus or, or <laughs> juggling? I was interested in candy. Candy, all right. So we're talking about this is the teenage years or even earlier years. <laughs> you know, I, I wasn't really interested in juggling. I didn't get into juggling until I was like in my early 20s. Oh, that's late, yeah. Yeah, it's late. It's late. Uh, but I was into hacky sack like towards the last half of high school. I didn't really know how to like get, you know, get good at it. I was into it. You know, I played a lot and stuff and I, you know, I could do like a a couple tricks, 
And, uh, you know, before that, I, I kind of wanted to be lots of different things that are kind of similar to professional juggler. Like I wanted to be a radio DJ. I wanted to be a stand-up comedian. I wanted to be like a cartoonist, you know, like uh, I really liked Garfield when I was like a kid. And I was like, oh, yeah, you know, so I thought those things would be cool. And then, yeah, I got really into hacky sack. And then, you know, sometime like, God, it must have been like, like senior year or something like that. I saw a good hacky sack player. I went down to Portland, Oregon. Uh, to visit some friends of mine from summer camp and uh, at the Saturday market there was like a really like a really good there were a couple of really good players and I just remember like life-changing moment of just like seeing somebody and just being like oh my gosh like I had no idea that was possible and my best friend at the time he told me he was like you will never be that good he went on to to make millions of dollars with Amazon and I went on to be really good at hacky sack so I sure showed him What, what did your parents do? Were they involved in the entertainment world or anything like that? Or No, my parents are intellectuals. My dad is a, uh, was a, a college professor at the graduate school level. And yeah, really distinguished professor. And my mom is a psychoanalyst. Interesting. So uh, you, you refer to it as hacky sack, not by its uh, official name of footbag. Why do you call, call it hacky sack and not footbag? Because even less people know what footbag is than hacky sack. So I've got to... Even now, even people like don't even know what hacky sack is. I was on, doing a news segment at this fair, and uh, I was like, "Oh yeah, I got into it through hacky sack." And this woman's like, "What's that?" She didn't even know what that was, and it's just like, "All right." Now, the hacky sack was the name that was given to it by yeah. the inventor, or yeah, yeah, it was. It was like I think the original hacky sacks were like you know hacky sacks official foot bag, so it was like their name brand for the original foot bag. Hmm. And then, uh, and then eventually, you know, they sold it. The guys who invented it, they sold it to Mattel or Whammo, which was bought out by Mattel. And and there you go. And the name come from a, the the story I heard was they used to hack the sack. Yep, they used to so, hack the sack. So it's just like a sack of dirt. I want to say rice. Oh, right. But they were they were like like river guides or something like that, and they would play when they got to the campgrounds. Maybe I don't know. I know they used to play football, and they like you know, or maybe using it to rehab a knee injury or something like that. There definitely are some professional jugglers who came through the footbag route. Yeah, were you friendly yeah. with those guys? Like uh, the one that comes right up to mind is Pete Irish, the executioner. Yeah, Peter Irish. Yeah, he uh, he is the guy who ins- who like kind of inspired me to become a professional juggler. I didn't even know that that was like a thing, and I had gotten this job uh, doing school assembly shows. This, this guy, Scott Clear, ran this uh, company called Creative Athletics, and he was, he was booking people out to do these school shows, and you'd go on tour for you know five or six months uh, doing three school assemblies a day, and I'd heard about this thing, and I was like, man, that would be really cool because you could basically get paid to play hacky sack. I knew that hacky sack was a part of this thing and that juggling was also – so I, I taught myself how to juggle. I remember one night I was like – I was living in half of a two-car garage – it had been like drywalled in and stuff. It was like super small. And I was like, all right, I'm going to stay up until I get 100, 100 catches with three hacky sacks. And I think I got pretty close. I got up to like 90-something, and then I like crashed out at like 3 in the morning. So I, I, I taught myself how to juggle that way. And then through some friends and my wife, who I had just met, she like signed me up for an email address, like a Yahoo account. So I emailed the guy. And then another person had kind of gotten the job, and I, we had a mutual friend and, you know, I eventually got the job and went out to the East Coast and Peter Irish toured with me for two weeks, you know, kind of like watching me do the shows and kind of giving me tips and stuff. And like the, the first night I met him, I was like, oh, you used to be a professional juggler. And he was like, yeah, yeah. And I was like, wow, really? That's like a job you can do. And he was like, yeah, I got a bunch of friends that, you know, are professional jugglers, a bunch of guys I used to know in San Francisco that are professional jugglers. 
And I remember that moment thinking like, that's what I'm going to do. That's what I'll be. I'll be a professional juggler because I was looking for like something to do with my life. Yeah, that was it. That was that was the moment where I decided to become a professional juggler. And uh, he was telling me about all these guys he knew in San Francisco. And he popped on some video of this guy doing like he was going through like all these juggling props. It was like he would do like a little bit of the devil sticks and he would do a little bit of the shaker cups and some cigar boxes and going through all these props. And he was like pumping this guy up. And that guy was you, Dan. That guy was you. Well, now Pete has a great nickname, the Executioner. Did you have a, a, a footbag nickname as well? No. No. I never got to the uh, the Big Ad Posse level. I got honorable mention three times. but uh, what, is, what is the Big Ad Posse? That was a group of footbaggers? Yeah, yeah. That's like the elite footbaggers. It's like the uh, the best of the best. Who, who was in that group? How many, how many made that group? Oh, gosh. There's a lot now. A lot. But it started – originally it was seven, seven guys. And now it's probably like 40 dudes or something like that. Can you name the original seven? Can you give those guys a shout-out? Who are the original seven? Original seven guys. Peter the Executioner Irish. Okay. Uh, Kenny the Enforcer Schultz. Tim Stickman Kelly, who is another professional juggler. Dennis D-Money Jones. Dimitri Sells One, I think is his name. I don't know his last name. He's like the more one of the more excused, uh, um, obscure sure. ones. There's a Joey Zaza Schaefer. Okay. There's one more. There's one more. Gosh. Uh, Rippin' Rick Reese, of course. How right, right. Rippin'. Yeah. When you went on this tour, was the idea that you would do these assemblies then try to sell product or was it simply to demonstrate the different kinds of games kids could play? What was the purpose of the tour? Yeah, there was some selling of product. I wasn't great at that aspect. He didn't really, you know, he didn't, Scott didn't really give me a whole lot of like, hey, yeah, you've got to really sell product and do this and that. He didn't give me a whole lot of training on that. It was more about doing his show where I would like demonstrate games from around the world. Yeah. So there was a script you had to follow. Were you able to yeah. sort of express your own comedy or was there comedy involved or just kind of follow this script? Yeah. I mean, there was a lot of flexibility. I mean, cause you're basically on the road alone. So yeah, there was like kind of a script, but you know, it wasn't like, Hey, say exactly this. It was kind of like a loose outline of stuff. And yeah, so, you know, I went out there and I went down before the tour, I went down to his spot, to Scott's spot in San Luis Obispo, and, like stayed there for a week. And, and at the end of the week, I did 14 shows in two days, which is, was insane. Wow. Right. Yeah, it was crazy. I mean, I was like, it was, yeah, it was a lot. 14 shows in two days for uh, PE classes. So we went to one school and did a show for every PE class. And then we did it again the next day. It was me and another guy who was supposed to go on tour with me. That didn't work out. But I just remember like the end of the second day being like physically exhausted and like my back hurt. I remember just being like, oh, my God. What did you stay? Did you have a little motor home or did you stay in your van or how did yeah, you? Yeah. I borrowed money from my parents to buy an Astro van. I was like, I think I was 21, 21. Right. And yeah, the original idea was, yeah, I was, I was going to try to sleep in the van. But January in Pennsylvania is not super warm. And that idea went out the window on the first first like week or two of that tour. It was like, all right, this is not going to be happening. So it was like hotels. But that was probably a pretty good training ground. I mean, you're in front of a lot of people. Did you feel comfortable in front of the audience? Did you feel you're sort of a natural, like being in front of people? Because you, you seem like a fellow who always sort of reveled in that attention a little bit. Did you oh, automatically yeah. go, I like this? I definitely reveled in the attention, but no, I was super like nervous and stuff too. Certainly in the beginning, it was like very nerve wracking. I remember the first show was in a little town called Millville, Pennsylvania. And um, Pete was there and I just remember being like super nervous and I did the show. And I remember Pete afterwards being like, they didn't, they didn't, you did fine, man. They didn't know it was your first show. They don't know. 
And once I got that first show out of the way, it was a lot easier. I remember that show. I also remember like the first show I did for a high school, which was which was super nerve wracking. Because the kids are a little bit older, you thought they'd be more judgmental. Is that the yeah, I think they, you know, yeah, exactly. I was worried about that, that they'd be more judgmental, and I'm sure they were. I'm sure the show didn't go as well. There's a few kind of hacky comedy things in that show, but it wasn't super funny, you know? It wasn't like a real comedy juggling show or anything like that. It was more like, hey, here's these different games, and I talk about the games, and I turn on some music, and I demonstrate the prop, and then move on, and there was volunteers and stuff like that. It took me a while to get the comedy thing, you know? It took me a long time to kind of figure out how to be funny or how to even attempt that. And do you still feel nervous at all? You've done so many thousands of shows. Are nerves something that still play a part when you go out there to perform? Or? Yeah, yeah. Well, it really depends. It's a, that's a great question because I still, I wouldn't say I get nervous, but I get anxious. I definitely get some anxiety for some things. Not for every show, sometimes it's not, nothing at all. But like, for example, just the other day, I had a long vacation. I hadn't performed a show in almost like a month. You know, I like worked really hard all summer and then had a, like a week off, and then me and the family went on a big vacation for 10, 11 days, and then I came back, and it was like I had a little strolling gig, and then like a week later, it was like time for my first show back, and it had been like a month, which is a long time for me. And uh, yeah, I was, I was definitely anxious before that first show, and like there's no logical reason. I've done thousands and thousands of shows. You know, it was a situation I like pretty much knew exactly what it was gonna be like, but still like anxiety. But then like once I get to the show and get everything set up and I'm ready to perform, then it's like I'm not really that nervous. But like the it's like the the leading up to that. Yeah, definitely. I definitely get some anxiety or like like next week I got to fly out to the east coast of Canada for like this five minute pitch, you know, like a five minute performing showcase. Yeah, a little showcase. Yeah. And um, I'll probably be a little anxious for that, too, um, just because it's like, you know, I'm dropping a bunch of money to fly out there. I'm not getting paid or anything. It's like showcase kind of situation. So. Is that for performing arts centers? What's that for? Yeah, yeah, for theaters and, and yeah, performing arts center type stuff. Yep. So when you take time off, let's say you go on a vacation, do you also take time off from practicing or rehearsing? Do you feel it's necessary to just take some time to refresh your batteries from the whole thing or you continue to practice even though you're not doing shows? No, I didn't practice at all. Like seriously, from the last show, like I opened my show with a Diablo bit and from the last show until I warmed up a little bit of Diablo like on the stage beforehand, like just like, okay, let me just try this. Okay, cool. We're good. And yeah, it was fine. No drops or anything. So, <laughs> well, maybe that's why you had some anxieties because you hadn't touched the props for a month. And No, it's that's not it at all. No, it's not, no, it's not about the skills. No, I, it's just, I don't know. I don't know what it is. Well, I think you stay sharp. If you keep working, you stay sharp. And if you haven't worked for a while, just that feeling that like... Yes. Yeah. There's always a fear of, uh, it's not necessarily injury, but the fear of embarrassment, I think, keeps a lot of people... Totally. ...from this profession, this fear of judgments and not doing well in front of others. It can be very daunting. Yeah, that's exactly it. It's totally like, yeah, the fear of, I mean, part of the reason I got into this thing is because I really, I like being accepted by people. I like the attention I get from doing shows. And yeah, the fear of like rejection or the fear of, yeah, like embarrassment or something. Yeah, yeah, that's real for sure. I think what I enjoy the most is sort of the release of that where you're nervous before the show. Like I usually I'll call my wife and be like, oh, this is the last time I'm ever going to do this. You know, it's, it's, I had to wait around all day and it's just, oh, I can't wait to not do this. And then you do the show, and then you if you do well, you're like, you have this feeling of euphoria. Yes. Of, yeah. of, 
overcoming some kind of resistance, some kind of block. Do you get that? Yeah, absolutely. That's that's that was a really accurate description. Yeah. I'm not necessarily calling my wife and being like, I'm never going to do this again. But... <laughs> That's my thing. People who know me know I've retired probably since yeah. I was maybe 45 every yeah. year. For me, it's like that anxiety feeling. Like I get that that anxiety of like um, – and it's pretty rare. Like if I'm like up and running and doing shows all the time – I don't really get it. But yeah, if I take a little time off shows or if I'm in a show that's a little bit different or something like, okay, it's all adults. Like I don't, almost all my work is for families or kids or something like that. So if it's all adults, I might be a little, I might be a little nervous, usually not a ton, but yeah. Yeah. What about when you're performing with other performers? Like I know we've both done something called moisture festival, which is yeah. a, an event up in Seattle and they, they kind of bring together all the best vaudevillians and variety acts. Do you like sort of being in a vacuum, like doing these shows on your own? Or do you like sort of being in a group of other performers? Do you feel that's uh, kind of more exciting or just more nerve-wracking? I uh, I like doing a group of other performers. It is definitely more nerve-wracking for sure because, you know, you're like, hey, I want to show well in front of my peers. So whenever I go up to the Moisture Festival, I always t- I'm always like, yeah, put me on early, man. Like, I don't want to be just sitting around all show being nervous. I want to, like, do my bit feel good about doing it and then hang out and talk to people and watch other people do their things. That's definitely my preferred method. I don't want to close out that show and and be sitting around all the time. I'm not a big one for closing the show. I know me and Barry, we did the Busker Festival in New Zealand and they had these big evening shows in a big plaza. This was before the earthquake out in uh, Christchurch, but there used to be a big plaza where they'd have the evening shows. And those were the big shows where you could make quite a bit of money because they'd pass the hat and everybody would split it up. Yeah. I remember the first time we did it, we just, we were like in the middle of the show or somewhere early, just killed, you know, really yeah. even a couple of the other performers stood up, which was quite uh, flattering. And of course the producer's like, Oh my God, you have to, you have to close the show from now on. I'm like, no, yeah, don't make us do that. <laughs> yeah. That's a lot. Yeah. Pressure is, it's not the most fun, but it's good to have a little bit too. You know, you don't want to be totally like whatever. There should be a change I think between just hanging out and actually performing on stage. Well, I think in, in life in, in general, you have to have that ability to, to face your fears. Even today, I have the Pier 39. And part of me was thinking, oh, I really don't want to do it. And just not wanting to is not really enough of a reason not to do something. Just, I don't feel like it. Right. Because once you give into that, I think it's a slippery slope. Yeah, because there's a lot of stuff with any job that you don't want to do. Well, what's the worst part of your job, you think? Is it the traveling? Is it away from the family? Because you, you're away quite a bit doing fairs and festivals. What do you think is the worst aspect of the job? That's a good question. That's a really good question. I think it, it really depends because sometimes, you know, one of my least favorite things to do is wake up in a hotel room alone. I really don't like that. I'm not a fan. It's part of the reason I like doing like morning shows more than like evening shows. If I'm on a tour by myself and like I don't have a show until six or seven at night, I just hate that. Like waking up in the hotel room, you don't have really anywhere to be or there's no purpose. And you're just kind of like, uh, that I really dislike. Whereas if I'm on, a, I'm on the road doing like a school show and I got to get up for the school show, it's much easier because I'm like, OK, cool. I got to get up at seven o'clock and I got to get my stuff going and shower and eat and you know, zip off to the school. And then once I'm like in the school and doing the show, then I'm good. Then that puts me in a better mood. That's one thing I actually really like about performing is if you're in a bad mood, if I'm in a bad mood and I have a show coming up, it puts me in a good mood 
to do the show because you have that's your job you know your job is to be like a fun guy so you that you like have to be so if i'm in a crummy mood and i have a gig i'll be in a i'll be in a good mood after the show or after whatever i have to do because that's the job let's talk about the job let's talk about how you went from a, basically a hacky sack footbag player doing this school assembly which gave you a lot of experience but not necessarily that much that might carry over into your own right. show. Yeah. What was the next step for you after that in your progression as a professional juggler? I did this this tour for five months. During the tour, like in the, right in the beginning, I kind of decided, like I we talked about Peter, Peter Irish told me like, oh yeah, I used to be a professional juggler. And I had decided like, okay, that's what I'm going to try to do. So I was practicing a lot on that tour. Um, and I was practicing a lot of footbag too, because I really wanted to, I wanted to compete in the intermediate division of the world championships that summer. And I wanted to win. So I was doing my routine three times a day for hundreds of people. And I, then, I, then at night in the hotel rooms, I'd be practicing three balls. I kind of like, I taught myself how to like kind of get three clubs going too. I mean, I could do a little Diablo. Sounds like you're pretty well self-taught. Were you, were you was it just a little bit from Peter? Did you, were you watching stuff? Was, was YouTube around back then? No, this you... is like 1999. So like the internet was not, there's not, it's not, yeah, there's no YouTube. Yeah, it was like learning the tricks that Peter taught me with three balls and I was doing like a little bit of club juggling, just like just trying to like just be able to juggle clubs. I remember there was one school where I was doing it. I was like, all right, I want to get up to 75 catches. And I was juggling those like plastic molded clubs and like taking it on the collarbone and stuff. And I was like pretty good with Diablo. I was like entertaining with Diablo because I, I had some cool body movement stuff. So I could do that. And the footbag stuff really helped translate into the juggling just because I'd had like I had practice techniques and stuff like that. I had the mentality of, yeah, you're going to have to try this thing a thousand times in order to get it. I had already had that what do you mean by practice techniques just the 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 patience or did you have a specific kind of regime that you would do yeah i mean nothing like you know professional level or like you know something nothing that i imagine you might get in circus school or something like that but just like the mentality of hey you want to learn this trick you're gonna have to mess it up a thousand times in order to get it you know you're gonna have to just do it over and over again the discipline and the patience of just accepting the failure over of doing something over and over again and not getting it which i think a lot of people don't have the patience for so i I had that so i was mostly learning like three ball stuff a little bit of diablo and i could do the devil sticks a little bit too and yeah like so yeah three ball and, and then tons of footbag stuff so i did that tour and then I took the, took the summer off. I had saved up some money so I could hang out. And then the next school year, I went out with a different company to basically do the same show with my with Jane, my wife. We weren't married at the time, but she was a footbag player too. So like we did that together. We did a show together for like six months in the Midwest. And then at that point, it was kind of like, all right, I, I kind of wanted to be a street performer at that point. Had you seen street performers? What were your experiences with street performers? Is that- yeah, that's a great question. I'd seen some of them. Like there's this thing in Seattle called the University Street Fair. So I had seen like I'd seen some jugglers there. There's this guy named Hillbilly Willie. Okay, yeah. I'm not familiar with Hillbilly Willie. Yeah, Hillbilly Willie. His finale was like playing fiddle on top of a tall unicycle. Okay. Yeah, he was like a jaded old street performer. But I had a lot of fear associated with going out and doing street shows. You know, and I didn't have an act, really. You know, I had this, like, school assembly act, which had been developed by somebody else. But I didn't really have, like, an act for myself. So at one point, I was good enough to go out to the Pike Place Market and juggle and get a crowd. But certainly not good enough to, like, keep them once I got them. It was kind of like, all right, I could go out and I could do some tricks and, like, do some Diablo and maybe do a little bit of clubs or a little bit of three ball and, like, build up a crowd. And then it'd be like, all right, I've run through all my tricks and I didn't know what else to do. And then the crowd would kind of disperse and I'd start over. So how, how'd you move forward then? So you're, you're doing a little bit of street performing. 
where'd you get your chops? What was there a, a, a turning point where you started to understand how to do it or did someone help you? What was the next step for you? Yeah. So, well, I was kind of, I was looking for a partner. Yeah. I wanted, I definitely wanted to do it with a partner. So I was like trying to convince different guys. So in, in 2000, my old boss, Scott Clear with Creative Athletics, he wanted me to train this guy to do the show. He was like, hey, can you go on the road for a week with this guy and do this show? And I was like, yeah, sure. You know, he paid me, you know, whatever, he paid me some money. So I went on the road with this guy named Matt Baker, who I had met a couple of times before. He was another hacky sack player, you know, so I went on the road and kind of the first half of the week I did the shows. And then the second half of the week, he kind of did the shows and and, uh, and then that was, that was that, but then, you know, you know, he'd stop into the house sometimes on weekends and stuff like that. And, you know, we became friends and I was really impressed with the, the speed at which he learned the technical skills. You know, he learned five balls really fast and he learned the tricks really quickly. So that was like, that was really cool. So, you know, I kind of was floating the idea like, Hey man, you know, I was like doing day jobs. Maybe I was like going to school or something like that, just kind of doing whatever. And I was like, Hey, you know, we should do some street shows together. And so that summer in 2001, the summer of 2001, like we did, we went out and like we tried to do some street shows together and we were terrible, you know, of course, but we were like passing clubs at that point. So we were like maybe passing around a guy and we were doing some like Chinese yo-yo stuff. We're doing some Diablo stuff. Gosh, what else were we doing in that show? That was probably about it. Maybe a couple other little things. Did you work uh, the footbag into the, the performance as well? Oh, yeah, yeah, right, right. We must have done some footbag. Yeah, we definitely did some footbag in there. How's the footbag go over on the street? It always seems to me it's kind of a small It's pretty object. small, yeah. But, you know, we like I think people appreciate skills, and we had skills. So it's small. When you're good at something, people notice it. So we probably, we probably started with footbag and then went to Diablo and then maybe finished with some club passing or something like that, you know, around a guy. Sure, the old pass around. That was, yeah, the old pass around, yeah. So that was probably our act. And was there a moment where you sort of said, both of you sort of had this realization of, hey, let's try to make this a thing. Let's try to get a name and, and actually. Yeah, yeah, there was. There was a moment. We were like starting to incorporate some ideas in there, too. There was this show at the time called like Blind Date, I think. Right. The TV show. And they'd, it was like a reality show. And they'd send people out on blind dates and they'd pop up these word bubbles behind their heads. Okay. Right, right. Supposedly what they were really thinking. Sure. And I thought that was kind of funny. So I was like, hey, like, we could do that in the show. Like I could like we could make these like word bubble signs. You could ask the guy questions and I could hold the hold up signs behind his head about like what he's really thinking. I remember we did that. We like we did that bit, which was kind of cool. It was like original. It was funny. So we did that with our pass around guy. But yeah, we got to the point. I mean, we did. Gosh, we did some awful shows. But, you know, there were some times where I think maybe we like. We might have made like the most we maybe made was like 50 bucks and a hat or something like that, or maybe 50 bucks for the day. No, we made mm -hmm. 50 bucks in a day. But like it was enough that we were like, hey, we could do this in the summer and make some money. As that summer was kind of wrapping up, he was going back out to do the tours again. You know, he's going to go back out and do these school shows. And we kind of were like, all right, next summer, let's do this again. Let's let's do it for real. I think we'd had our name by then. We, we were the brothers from different mothers. Now, what, uh, now that's a very unusual name. It's not like uh, like some people just use the name of their of their real name, like Penn and Teller or something. Sure. Now, what made you choose? Did people ask if you were actually brothers? You certainly don't look alike. So there probably wasn't like a confusion that way. Who, who had the idea, I guess, and why was that the name that stuck? It was Matt's idea. It was something he had seen on an old poster on his friend's wall, like advertising like some funk band or, or like it was like a funk tour or something like that. He'd seen on a poster on his buddy's wall. It's catchy, It's it, which, which I think we both liked. 
And I think we kind of have this this notion like, oh, yeah, like there's the Flying Karamazov brothers and there's the Raspini brothers. And there's like a, certainly a tradition of jugglers using brothers in their name. So I think we were like, yeah, that fits. And so, yeah, so that's what we picked for better, or for worse. And how long did the team last? So we'll go over some of the highlights. But at a certain point, you guys have split apart. Now you're doing a very successful solo how long was the lifespan of the brothers from different mothers? Well, we started doing street shows in 2001. And I mean, I remember that first show. It was awful. And uh, but by the end of that summer, like we kind of had an act. It wasn't as awful. You know, it was like, hey, we have like an act with a beginning, a middle and an end. We could pass the hat. It was like we had an actual act. I mean, it probably wasn't very good, but we could do it. And then that winter. I had I had I had booked something for us at this venue called Hokum Hall that was run by uh, Hokum W. Jeebs, who mm -hmm. some some of your listeners might know. He was a you know a real variety act guy. Yeah, piano player, musician, centric musician. Yeah, centric music act. I mean, he he had a legit act. He had done some really cool stuff in his career. Uh, really funny act, man. I mean, he was a great act for sure. Really cool guy. Yeah, I saw him do a duo when I was at Moisture Festival. He did a duo with Rob Torres. They worked as partners. Yeah, I never saw that. I never saw that. Or maybe I did watch it on YouTube or something. But yeah, his solo act was great, man. He did a bunch of cool stuff. So he was running this little like vaudeville hall in West Seattle. And they had installed like a legit Wurlitzer, you know, with the organ and sure. all of these different sound effects had like been installed up in the these like shelves kind of towards the ceiling. It was awesome. I mean, this Wurlitzer was totally legit. So he was doing these variety shows there. And uh, I, gosh, I can't remember if he found me or if I found him or if it was like maybe a little bit of a combination of both. But he was like, hey, you know, do you want to come in and do these shows? And I think Matt had a break in his tour. So in like that January, we went out and like we did these shows like January 2002. We went out and did some shows there. And then the next summer we started it up full time, you know, like in May he was done with his his tour. I'd been going to school that year. I was wrapping up my associate's degree. And so he finished his tour. I finished my associate's degree. And there were a bunch of like kind of like street performing type of things in Seattle. There was the University Street Fair. And then the like the week after that, there was like Folklife Festival where you could busk. Yeah, we just started. We just did street shows that summer and we were trying to like get promo materials together. So we basically started in 2001. And then our last show together was May of 2011. So about 10 year, about a 10 year period. Yeah, about 10 years, about 10 years. You know, the beginning wasn't totally full time. And then the end, we had, had kind of transitioned into our own solo careers. So I had done my first solo show in June of 2010. But yeah, overall, it was about 10 years, about a, about a 10 year, 10 year, 10 year run. And one thing I saw on your website that I believe you and Matt did is you got to perform for the Armed Forces. You did like an Armed Forces tour. Yeah, DOD tour, uh, Armed Forces Entertainment. So what was that like? Is that the same as, uh, what's the other kind of tour people go on the... the um, USO, I think. USO. Is that is that a division of the USO or is that something different? Different than the USO, but it's basically the same thing. It's a different okay. division, but it's the same sort of deal, I think. And did you go to Europe? Where, where were these? Uh, or... Yeah, we went to Europe. Yeah. Yeah, 2005, we got this gig. God, I can't even remember how we got this thing. But, uh, you know, it didn't, it didn't really pay. They, I think they gave you a per diem. And they gave you, we got a tour bus and a driver, which was super cool. So it's just like me and him in this giant tour bus. There were like six beds in there. Like you go in the back and there's like a little like kind of lounge area with like a TV and a bunch of DVDs and stuff like that. Our driver was this dude named Herman the German. And uh, yeah, he was great. We went in, we did England. I think we did four shows for like uh, in Air Force bases in England. 
And then we, we took the bus over the, the English Channel into France and down to Belgium. We did a – no, no. Gosh, what did we do then? Did we go into – I don't think we did shows in France, but we eventually went over to Germany. Most of the shows were in Germany. And then we finished off with like a show, a show or two in Belgium. But we got to do some sightseeing along the way. It was a great experience. It was awesome. It was really cold. Right. Yeah, because it was like December in Europe. So it was super cold. But it was great. It was super cool. I mean the shows weren't great, but uh, – the whole experience was. They weren't great because of the situations they put you in or the sizes of the crowds? Yeah. The shows were tough? Yeah, the situations they put you in. Um, like the Air Force, the shows in England the, at the Air Force bases, like those ones were all right. I remember being like, oh, cool, yeah, here's like this family show. It was like a bunch of kids and all the, all the people. But then like one of the shows, I remember one of the shows, it was like these people on the bases – it was like maybe wives and kids. And I remember one of them, it was like, hey, the, the troops were supposed to come back. Like these women are waiting for their husbands to come back and they were supposed to be back from Iraq. And instead they got redeployed for six months. So oh. the, the celebration that was supposed to be, you know, hey, yeah, your husbands are back and we're all celebrating and we got some jugglers. Um, instead it was like, Hey, instead of your husband's, we got these jokers. <laughs> <laughs> so right, right. That's not a, conducive to a, a great show, but you know, yeah, the shows were what they were, but it was super cool. You know, we got to, I got to see, uh, I got to see Brussels. Uh, we zipped up to Amsterdam for a little bit and got to see a bunch of cool little towns in Germany and stuff. So it was cool, man. You guys did a TV show together in, in China. Was that a, a Guinness world record? Yeah. We did, we did a Guinness world record show in China. Yeah. What was the record, and did you did you actually beat it? What was your uh, what were you trying to accomplish? It's kind of funny. So one of the producers had contacted me because I, I have a Guinness World Record for a hacky sack trick. So he sent an email to me. This is two thousand eight, just saying like, hey, you know, do you want to come out and break your your hacky sack record, you know, in China? And at at the time, I knew there was no way I could break that record. What's, what's your record? What was the record? I have a record for most eclipses in with a foot bag done in a row, consecutive eclipses. So the record eclipses. What kind of trick is that? A cross-legged thing or a? Yeah, it's like a flying hop. Imagine, imagine stalling a hacky sack on the inside of your foot, and then with your other foot jumping over the foot that has the stall on. It. It's called like a hop over, right? Okay. Right. So you're, you have it on the inside, and then with your right foot, and then with your left foot, you jump over your foot that has the ball on it. Okay, and the ball kind of goes over your foot. You kind of sw sweep around it. Yeah, the ball doesn't leave your foot until it's until the other leg's on the ground, and then you can pop it up and do another trick, right? Okay. So I do that, but it's all executed in the air. So I jump up in the air, stall it on the foot, leap over, and then throw it before I land. And what was the record? How many did you have to do to get the record? I did, I did 26. So I did okay. 26 of those. So I had that record. That was like when I was at my peak of my footbag powers was when I set that. That was like sure. two and this was 2008, and there's no way I was going to beat that record at all. Not to say I couldn't have gone out there and just tried it anyway and taken their money and <laughs> right. got their show or whatever. But Matt and I, we were, you know, we were still partners. It was kind of towards, you know, our relationship had deteriorated by this point. But I was still like, we were in this partnership, so I was kind of like, hey, you know, I could come out and do that, but I'm in this juggling duo, and we have a couple other tricks that we could potentially do Guinness World Records with. You know, we threw him a couple ideas out there. And he was like, all right, great. We'll, we'll fly out and, and we'll put you on this show. And one of the ideas was a record that hadn't been set yet. So it's like the leap over trick, you know, where one person leaps over the other guy. and or Jump frog or leap, leap over. Yeah, leap frog trick or whatever. We were doing that in the show where he was the leaper. So we knew that was the possibility. So I'd been practicing being the leaper and him being the tosser. And so, yeah, so that's the trick we did over there. 
most in a row or most for a period of time or, or how'd you set that record? Yeah, most in 60 seconds is the record. Now, did you alternate like sort of a leapfrog or did one guy? Yeah, we alternated. Okay, so he would jump over you, then you would jump over him, then he would jump yep. over you. And how many did you do in 60 seconds? Well, we did six, which is pretty weak. Yeah, one every 10 seconds seems a bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we did, we did six. We had eight attempts, I think. Each of us made a mistake once. Mm. Uh, once I think I missed, and once he threw the, he tossed up the clubs early. Yeah, like later, like now the record's at like I don't know, thirteen or fourteen or something. Right, but that you were set, you weren't trying to beat a record. You were just setting it. We were so setting you, it. Yeah, you six. You since it was the first time, you got the record. Yeah, we did. We did get the record. Yeah, and you know later I got better at the trick and stuff. But yeah, so we went out and we we set that and got to go to Beijing, which was awesome. So like when the when the end came after ten years. Was it more of a, like you're saying, a personality conflict or more of a business thing where at a certain point you thought, oh, I can make more money as a solo and the jobs are not as coming as quickly or rapidly as we want or we're not progressing. So was it more of a business decision or more like the, the years no. together kind of uh, developed a, a dislike for each other? Yeah. I mean, there were, no, there was a lot of tension in our relationship. I mean, a tremendous amount of tension, three hour silent car rides, you know, stuff like that. Was it because you wanted different things out of the, the partnership? That was part of it, yeah. That was part of it, for sure. We'd get calls for, like, a cruise ship gig. We weren't necessarily at the high end of our, you know, cruise ship earning potential. So right. when I had a wife and at one point, you know, my, I had a kid and stuff. And, and Matt's single. Matt's a single guy. So, you know, this cruise ship gig comes along and I'm kind of like, yeah, leave for a whole week to make like a thousand bucks or twelve hundred bucks or something like that. For me, that didn't make a lot of sense. And for him, he's like, hell yeah, like let's let's <laughs> do it. So that that was part of it. But really, it was just the it was just the personality conflict. There was just so much tension. Oh my gosh, the relationship was completely toxic between the two of us. Which always surprised me because I always liked both you guys individually. But it just it was just our relationship had really deteriorated. There was definitely a point kind of early on. This is like my main regret. I totally remember this. And it was pretty early on, too, where he kind of came to me and was like, hey, I don't really want to be friends with you anymore. I just want to do this as like a business, mm. you know, and I think he was trying to set some boundaries and stuff, which which makes sense. But for me, looking back, I really wish I had, I had said, like, no, I'm not interested in having a relationship like that. We can either be friends and do this business or we can be friends and not do this business or we can just totally be, be separate. So I, I wish I had done that. And, you know, he was he was smart to want to set boundaries. I think that was something that needed to happen for sure. But to, to say, like, no, I don't want to be friends, I think, was something that I should not have agreed to that because then it was just kind of weird and it was really not conducive to creativity. You know, we had, we have really different kind of creative processes. I think he's much more of a, uh, sit down and write some jokes kind of a guy. Like he would definitely do that. Like go to the coffee shop with his computer and like write a lot of these jokes. And that's not really me. I'm not that kind of a guy that like, that's not really how I like to work. You're more visual. He's more cerebral. Would you say? Yeah. Cause like in your shows that you've gone separate ways, he's definitely kind of gotten more of the sort of almost stand up comedian with props. Yeah. Kind of route, wanting to sort of do more clubs and colleges and that kind of thing. And you've really become this premier family entertainer. Yeah, yeah. I, I, and I always liked, you know, doing shows for, for kids and their parents. I love performing for kids and their parents. That's my favorite type of thing. Not that I didn't like the other shows that we were doing. Those were fine, too. But yeah, he wanted to do those types of shows. You know, we had kind of stopped doing library shows, which is something I always enjoyed. And I understood why. It was like, yeah, they don't pay that much money. They weren't necessarily going to help our career. So I was like, yeah, that's, that's, that makes sense to not do those library shows. 
But yeah, you know, yeah, he's very cerebral, very like lots of like quippy one-liners and stuff like that. And for me, I'm more of just a wacky guy. Well, your nickname is The Zaniac. That's your... Exactly. (laughs) You know, if our relationship had been really good and really, if he had been a little bit more encouraging, perhaps... Um, and if I had, I mean, we can get into all that. I'm not trying to, you know. No, no. You're just giving your, your side of things. We'll, ha- we'll have Matt on another future episode and he can he can tell what his side was. But yeah, this is Zerby's time. But I think if our relationship had been really good and we were able to kind of work together that we that we could have done like a really good show, he could have brought the best that he brings and I could have brought the best that I bring. But we got to a point where that just was not happening happening at all. And, you know, when, when we split up, I think, the, I think the reason it took us so long to split up because, you know, our relationship was tough for years. I think it all comes down to fear. You know, it all comes down to this is how we were making our living. And both of us, I think, were, were kind of like, oh, gosh, yeah, we're just doing this because this is what we're doing. And we were making our living and to split up meant not only develop, getting out there by yourself and doing your own show – but just building it all up again and booking your show and doing all that sort of stuff. And then looking back on it after having split up, it was like the transition really could not have been smoother for both of us. Like we both hit the ground running. We both had a long period of time to like get our show together and get it up. And there was no financial hiccup at all. I basically went in from doing the brothers show to doing my own stuff. And just, there was no weird financial stuff. I just went into, you know, making more money as a solo because you don't have to split up those paychecks. Well, and people don't realize the, the thing about the team is part of it is the camaraderie, the idea that you're in some place where you don't know anybody. You have a guy to go out to dinner with. You have a guy to go sightseeing with. Yeah. Let's go play ping pong. Let's go take a hike. And it, it helps to fill that time, that downtime. Yeah. Well, a really smart guy once told me there's three reasons to stay in a duo. One, you can make more money in the duo than you can as a solo. Two, you enjoy the duo more than you would with a solo. You enjoy the company of your partner. And three, you think the potential of the duo is more than the solo. None of those things ended up being true for us. It was kind of like, yeah, I can make more money as a solo. We're not really getting along. And the potential is not there because I think in order to be a successful do, I mean, not necessarily, but you've got to have, you got to have some sort of working relationship. You know, you got to have a, a healthy working relationship, even if you're not best buds or something. And so we had none of those things. I think that was me, right? <laughs> yeah, with you. Yeah, that's yeah. <laughs> I think the word I used was equity. What's the value in it? If you're making more money because the name has more value, you're able to make twice as much as a solo. Mm-hmm. Well, then the na- or if you feel like, well, in the future well, I have a greater earning potential because I'm in this team. Or like you said, or it just, I don't want to go out by myself. I, I like being in a team. Right. And with my buddy. Yeah. Yeah. But once all three of those things, you go, well, I don't see any of those happening. Then like I say, but fear is a big component of every career. Yeah. And it's hard to, hard to overcome. It's a big component in life. You're not, not taking chances, not trying things. Uh, right. Right. Because of fear of the future. Fear right. Of the unknown. But- so yeah, so I had to overcome my fear, and um, you know, I had to tell Matt, no, like we're gonna. I remember, I remember, like I remember where exactly where I was and our conversation and everything. I remember telling him, yeah, next summer I'm not, we're not gonna do shows together. Yeah, it was like it was like the beginning of a summer, I think. I think we were maybe like June or July. And I told him over the phone, all right, next summer we're done. And we had we had a bunch of stuff booked. We had like some, a couple nice tours in maybe October and then again in April. So that was good. And then we had that whole year to work on our solo stuff and to, to get that kind of together. And how does one split up the, the material? Was it like a situation where 
you each were kind of doing your own solo routines within the show? No, no, we did not have any solo routines in the show. Everything in the show was both of us on stage at the time. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, no, we went over. I mean, Matt was the primary joke writer. He really valued his jokes and stuff. So our kind of agreement was whoever wrote the joke gets the joke. Right. It was a joke that was a partner written joke because some of the jokes were like, oh, yeah, we kind of thought of this together. Like sure. One person came up with one aspect and one person came up with the other aspect. So if that was the case, then both of us could use the joke. And yeah, so the jokes, I think, kind of fell into one of those three categories. I wrote it, he wrote it, or we wrote it together. And so, yeah, we went like joke by joke and split everything up. Yeah, we have lists of all of the all these jokes and stuff. So, yeah. And at one point you guys tried uh, the America's Got Talent route. That was something you did as a team? Yeah, that, I think that was 06, yeah. Oh, sick. What do you think about those shows? Would you ever think about going on again as a solo? And what was your experience like when you and Matt did it? Yeah, well, so we were on season two. So it was a little different. It was a little different back then. They didn't travel from town to town. And yeah, I would absolutely go on it. Go on America's Got Talent again. It's only going to help you. It's only going to help your career. It's just a pain in the butt. You got to go through all these processes. For us, it was really easy. We just sent in a video audition and the Passing Zone had been on the year before and they did really well. So they were like, oh, another kind of similar act to the Passing Zone. Obviously, the Passing Zone is a lot better than we were. It was like, oh, yeah, two guys doing juggling tricks. Like, that's cool. So, yeah, we went on and we, we it was a little tricky because we knew we were going to have to get Piers Morgan and Sharon Osbourne. It was her first year because David Hasselhoff didn't like jugglers. So we were like, all right, he won't vote for us. We had to get them and, and we couldn't do it. We couldn't get Sharon to vote for us. So we only, we got Piers to vote for us, but that was, that was kind of that. So we made it to the celebrity judges and, um, and did she say something like, Alex, you're too weird. Or what exactly did she, what she said. Is that what it was? Yeah. Yeah, totally. So yeah, that's a, that's a line in the show. I tell, tell people that in the show that it always gets a laugh. Yeah, I think I, I think I remember that. So yeah, we did the America's Got, but absolutely, if you can get on America's Got Talent, do it because it's a, a great, I, I think it's more impressive to people than the Guinness World Records. Well, so you have to do things people know. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and, and even Guinness Book of World Records, I think has sort of dimmed in its, because uh, maybe it's not a TV show. There are TV shows, but nothing really that popular here no. in America. Yeah, I think it's cool, but it, it's not as cool as America's Got Talent. I mean, you got to think that show is hugely successful. I think they're in season 12. Is it a show you watch? I mean, I watch it every season. Is this something I don't you... It, no. No? I do. I should. It's like, yeah, I should watch it, but it feels too much like work. I watch that and I watch the gong show because those are the ones I see my friends on. And Yeah. Yeah. Part of it is is I don't get TV. I don't get TV, so... You don't have a TV or, or you just don't get it? I just don't have cable. So, so uh, wait a minute. So you're saying <laughs> it's, it's 2018. You don't get cable. So you just have regular TV. Then you order. I don't even get, we don't even get regular TV. Yeah. I just get, I just do Netflix and Amazon prime and stuff like that. Yeah. No TV. I know you like a lot of podcasts. Cause I, I heard you on another podcast. Let's give them a shout out. Was it the tailgate entertainer? Sure. Yeah. There's quite a few good ones now. There's another one, a variety artists. Oh, I don't know um, that one. Yeah. yeah. I think it's just at varietyartist.com. It's the variety artist podcast. I don't know if there's a couple other juggling ones. I'm not sure if they're still active or going as often as these other ones, but I would check out those. I think it's always good to get as much information, get as much sort of other people's experiences yeah. you know, as far as your own career. So you went solo and you, you've had a very successful career. You had a bit of a setback. I think, was it last year? You, you suffered a knee injury. Yeah, yeah. I, uh, I, had, I had to have ACL surgery. Was that during a show or how, how'd that occur? Yeah, well, I had injured my ACL years before, and so I was kind of living without an ACL for a long time. The ACL's in the knee or the ankle? I'm being yeah, a little bit... Yeah, it's in the knee, yeah. Knee, okay. I've heard of it, but... It's a super common injury if you play football. 
Right. Tons of football players have had their ACLs blown out. It's the ligament that runs through the middle of the knee. I had torn it earlier, like years ago, and they were like, yeah, you don't, you, they were like, you can get the surgery, but because you didn't damage anything else in the knee, they were like, you can just live without an ACL, just don't go snowboarding and, you know, or play basketball or do contact sports. And I was like, all right. So I was doing shows in the summer and I work a lot in the summer. I had booked too many shows. I think I was scheduled for tw- for 53 shows in 25 days. Is that what school assemblies, libraries? Is it kind of a combination? Yeah, libraries and fairs. Yeah, probably. Yeah, combination of stuff. Yeah, yep. The libraries are a little trickier because you got to pack up after everyone and move them and the fairs are fairs. So you get to stay in the same place, but you know, you're at a fair. It's like three shows a day. Type yeah, of thing. three shows a day and stuff. So yeah, it was 25 days. So like day 23, I just, I was doing this thing. I do this gag in my show where I have this, I, I have to like wear a mask kind of. So your, your vision is limited. And I had hopped off the stage while wearing the mask and was, the stage was super low, like a foot, foot tall, you know, like basically jumping off of a step. So it was like a nothing. Yeah. I hit the ground, my knee subluxed. So it like kind of slipped out of joint for a second. Oh, okay. So that tore the meniscus. But at the time it was like, I hit the, I, you know, I landed on the ground and then I kind of crumpled my, at the first I thought I, there was a kid at the front of the stage that I didn't see and that my knee like slammed the kid into the head. Oh, I was okay. like, oh, like, did I just slam a kid into the head with my knee? <laughs> yeah, like I didn't know what was going on. I'm like, I totally went into shock. You know, I look out from behind the mask and I'm like totally confused. And, and it took me a while to figure out, oh, no, I just I hurt my knee and I kind of figure it out. I get back on stage and I, I finish the show because the show must go on, man. Sure, sure. Showbiz. Yeah. So I finished the show and I like, I'm like, oh yeah, my knee's all messed up. And so I drive to a Rite Aid and buy a brace and do the last show of my scheduled set. And at this point I'm like, yeah, my knee is messed up, man. You know, I pack up all my stuff and I, I make some phone calls to some other entertainers to, to get some options for the fair. And then I might limp myself to the, uh, the, the fair office and I'm like, Hey guys, I'm really sorry. It hurt my knee. I can't come back tomorrow, but here's three guys that are available. And I kind of lay out the, the, their options I'd called three different people and they, sure. you know, they, they grabbed, I grabbed one of them and uh, they got Matt Henry, who's another juggler. You might've had him on your show. Yeah, Not yet, but I know Matt. He's a very good entertainer. Yeah, he's great. So I packed up my stuff and drove home and oh God, that drive home sucked. I'm like totally exhausted from doing three shows at this fair. I'm like, you know, I've been in shock. My knee is hurting. I'm like icing up my knee. Is it right knee or left knee? Is it right left knee? knee? Yeah, left, left knee. knee. Okay. So yeah, at least, yeah, at least I didn't have to deal with the, uh, the, the, yeah, the pedal on the knee. Right. I'm like, I'm probably like hungry and like I'm icing my knee and I'm just totally exhausted. I get home and just crash out. And then, yeah, I had to call all my, cause I had tons of other shows. I had to call all these other people to cancel shows and, um, help them find other people. And yeah, so did all that. And you had to go for surgery. You had to get some surgery done. Yep. Had to have surgery and do the physical therapy to build the strength back up and, yeah, and then go back in and do sh- and do shows again. And that was about eight months ago or a year ago. How long ago was that? Yeah, it was a little over a year now. It was a year and a month. Oh, no, it was a year and two months that I got injured. A year and a month since I had the surgery. Really, almost to the day. Yeah, yeah. How's it feeling now? Did it, is it a full recovery? Do you still feel twinges sometimes? Have you? Did you have to modify your show? I did have to modify my show for sure. Not a ton, but I took out some jumping moves. Not a ton though, not a ton, but yeah, I took out a few things, especially in the beginning and yeah, I had to wear a brace. So I've been wearing a brace in all my shows since then, except literally this week. So I I took that month off or whatever. And then I went back to doing shows and I started wearing my brace and I was like, man, the knee feels pretty good. So just a couple days ago, I, I tried a show without the brace on 
and it, it went fine. And so the next day I did all three shows without my brace. Friday, today's a, a Sunday. So Friday was the first day I did all, I did three shows without a brace since, since the, since the surgery. And you plan now to go without it or just even for safety, you know, you're not going to continue wearing it. You think it's, I, I probably won't wear it again, unless I have a reason to. I was doing like physical therapy, hardcore, man. Like my physical therapy workout was two and a half, three hours of right. working out, man. It was, yeah, I, I have this awesome physical therapist. In May, my legs were, were stronger than they'd ever been. And then, you know, I had to do all my summer shows. So I had to stop the physical therapy because I just didn't have time to do that while I was banging out all these shows this summer. I'm basically like, all right, I got to get back into that. I got to go back into the gym and, and get back, get my strength back. So well, let's talk about what you do in your show. We're kind of getting towards the end a little bit. So let's talk about what kind of routines you do and, and give people a description of what a, the Zaniac is all about in his shows. What kind of, what kind of uh, props you do and what kind of routines are there? So I open up my show with uh, a routine that I call the suitcase routine. So it's a, it's a minute long. It's to music. I wear like crazy colored pants in my show, but I come out with um, just like black pants that are tearaway pants. Mm -hmm. So I come out and I, I dance around. I do that little suitcase isolation. And I got a couple gags in there. I got, I got a gag in there. I rip off the tearaway pants. And then the, the, the kind of the payoff for that routine is, is this original gag where I have cut a hole in the back of the suitcase and uh, the size of my face, and then I, I hold up the suitcase, you know, I like pretend like I open up the suitcase, and, and then I like scream, and it's kind of like a surprising thing. It's like then my face is in the suitcase. The face in the case. Face in the case, man, that's exactly yeah. right. Yeah. So I open up with that, which is kind of like a, it's to music, it's kind of high energy, I do some dancing, it's kind of goofy, I got some funny gags, so it establishes that high energy show, it's gonna be funny, and it's kind of goofy. From there, I do a couple jokes, and then I do my Diablo routine, where I started off uh, while beatboxing and doing Diablo, and then I do jokes. It's probably one of my strongest uh, comedy routines as far as the the strength of the jokes goes. It's probably one of my, it's one of my strongest routines too because it uses my physicality. I'm decent at Diablo. I'm not like some hotshot guy, but I got some skills. You know, I can do some tricks and stuff. And then I do this kind of standard juggling routine where I spin three balls on a kid. And then I do this routine where I play Mary had a little lamb on a, a recorder while I'm doing a paddle ball and a whoopee cushion and a horn. And I got this other little kind of thing. There's jokes, and I kind of go out into the audience and try to get a kid to catch the ball with his mouth, and that's really funny. So yeah, that's not really a juggling routine except for the paddle ball. And then I do a routine with a digital looping station where uh, I get a volunteer up there, and then I we build like a beat. I do like a beatboxing beat, and then I get him to add uh, different things to the beat using little like toy instruments, like a little slide whistle, a little shaker, a bunch of these little toy instruments, and then I do a combo trick with the, with all the instruments at the end. So I like spin the drum on a drumstick that I hold in my mouth. And then I, I juggle the, the shaker and the bell. I swing the slide whistle around my left hand. And then I do like a hoop on my right, on my left foot. Then I do a club juggling trick. You know that trick where you balance the club on your chin, pop it up to your nose, to your forehead, kick it with the bottom of your foot and it comes flying over your face. Is that called the, I think I've heard that called the scorpion kick now. Oh really? Yeah, I don't know. The kickback is what I call it. You let it fall over the back of your head, behind yeah. you. Yeah. You bring your foot up, once again, behind you. Do you hit it with the sole of your foot? I've never actually done that trick, or is it yeah, the yeah. heel? Yeah, yeah, you kick it with the sole. Yeah. Sole. Yeah, you kick it with the sole, for sure. And you try to hit the, the, the bulb end of it, not the handle, so it just basically falls off. Yeah, you hit it half turn. the top of the club. Yeah, the top, top of the club. club. So I do that trick, but then, you know, there's some, I do, it's a club routine, but that's sure. like the kind of centerpiece of it. I kind of start off, I do a couple jokes, I do a couple tricks. 
then I do that trick. And then afterwards I do this, I'm like, oh, we got to celebrate. I have this thing that I developed with this other performer, this kind of gag. It's a photograph of my hand that's blown up really big, right? Mm -hmm. And it's on the end of an extendable pole. So I'm like, oh, we got to celebrate. Put your hands up. It's time for a high five. And then I like run out into the audience with this big picture of my hand on the end of this long pole. And I high five people. It's great because you can high five people, you know, three, four rows deep in your audience. And you can like, you know, you can high five everybody. It's really interactive and stuff. So that's really great. I do that. I go throughout the entire audience and like high five as many people as I can. And then I have a follow up gag. You know how people will do those things like fist bump, turkey, you know, that that sort of sort of thing where you do these like silly fist bumps, like fist bump, snail, dolphin, whatever. Gotcha. Gotcha. Sort of. After the high five, I come back and I'm like, oh, if I missed you with a high five, I'll get you with a fist bump. And I have another big picture gag thing of right. a thing that looks like my fist, but then it flips out to the turkey part. I got you. The fingers pop out. Yeah, it's just silly. We don't need to do all the jokes. No, no, no. We're getting the idea. It's just a lot of physical gags, juggling, but the juggling is sort of more like the one you, with the loop station. You build the song, you do the trick to the song, lots of audience involvement, lots of energy. Yeah. Lots of fist bumping, lots of turkeys. Yeah, lots of silliness for sure. Silliness. I do rap songs too. I've written a total of eight songs. I'm probably actively doing four of them. I do a science song in my science show. I plan to ask you to end this podcast with a rap, so prepare yourself. Oh, yeah, all right, all right. A little beatboxing and a rap to wrap it up, so to speak. Right. So I got my uh, my science song. I got a library song. I got a a Get Goofy song, which is my latest one, which I've been ending my show with. I'm really happy with it. And I got this other song, Zania song. The five songs that I do in my show. Not all. I usually don't do all five in one show. Yeah, the parent rap, the parent man song too. That's a that's a good one. That one ends up in a lot of shows. And you also have your what your your hat routine. I remember that quite well. That's one of my strongest bits for sure. Do a, a hat routine to like a kind of a mashup of different songs. I do a routine where I'm on a rollabola, where I juggle a knife, an egg, and a bowling ball, and then I catch an apple on a fork launched out of a giant slingshot. Let's see what else? I know I'm missing some other bits. Uh, do two ping pong balls in the mouth, just kind of standard comedy juggling routine stuff. That trick is just so strong. It's hard to go wrong with that trick. Oh, I do I do another routine where I slice a stock of celery in half with a thrown playing card. I've always liked that one because it's a, once again, sort of a different type of associated skill where you throw a card strong enough, you hold it between your fingers and kind of flick it. Yeah. And you can actually can cut a piece of celery. Yeah. Yeah. I taught myself using YouTube videos. I saw it. I saw somebody do it on, you know, on the internet and I was, that seems like a trick that I could get consistently Um, Because some tricks, like, I'm not that strong of a juggler. I've been juggling five balls for a long time. Yeah, I can get 100 throws, maybe maxing out at 200 or something like that. But it's just not consistent. I'm doing much better with, like, an individual trick that has, like, a beginning and an end as opposed to something that, like, is continuous. I also do a trick where I – I've never seen anyone else doing this. It's kind of a cool one. It used to do it with a table, but where I take a volunteer's cell phone and I put it in a selfie stick. And then I balance it on my foot and then I kick it up to a balance on my face. That's kind of like what I would consider like a B bit, kind of like your best bits. And then you're like, you know, your sure. bits and your B bits. That's more of like a B bit. But yeah, I, I do that in some shows sometimes. Where do you see the future of the Zaniacs? So you're kind of creating this. I know you're doing more sort of songs and raps and trying to get more of these performing arts series. Where do you see the future of the Zaniac going? Is there a, a plan in place, like a five-year plan? No, no, (laughs) no, man, that's a great question, because I think, you know, when you're working towards something, it's a lot easier. 
Like when Matt and I were starting out, you know, we had each other and we were like, all right, we want to do colleges and let's like build up so we can do these things. And you're working hard for this goal. And then when you split up, you're like, all right, now I got to do it by myself. And I got to, you're doing it, you know, you're like, all right, I got to develop my own bits and I got to get out there and like establish myself and find my market and make the promo and do all this stuff. You have this place where you know you can get. And now I'm, I'm at this place where I'm kind of like, all right, now what? <laughs> Right, you're at that place where you're working towards and you finally get there where you're, yeah. you're booked consistently. Like I look at your schedule and you're definitely, it'd be hard to add more. I'll just do more shows. Yeah, yeah. I'm kind of at a point where it's it's hard to add more shows where it's like, all right, I can't just keep adding shows. I don't necessarily, I don't want to go off and do these long tours. Like I got young kids and a wife. I don't want to be away from home. So I've established myself as like a really good regional entertainer. I do Lots of schools and libraries in the, the area and obviously the random local gigs. Oh, yeah, Microsoft or Facebook or whatever. This church, you know, those types of shows. Sure. People who find you or get word of mouth and they're looking yeah, for an entertainer. Yeah, I've, been, I've been in the area for a long time. Yeah, the Parks and Rec show. Yeah, we'll get you for our summer concert series or whatever it is. So I, I'm doing kind of that stuff. And then I'll do some theater tours where it's like, okay, I'll go out and I'll do I'll, maybe I'll be gone for a week or 10 days doing theaters and schools, you know, wherever in Ohio or Canada or, or down in California or whatever it is. Yeah. So now it's kind of like, all right, now, now what, what do I do now? I don't necessarily want to, I mean, one idea I kind of had was trying to really be the performing arts center guy, but my show isn't really, it's not exactly what they're looking for. I don't play like a character per se, you know, like sure. this guy, Dr. Kaboom, who plays the character of like a German scientist and he does a science show and he's like, he's really successful in that market, but he spends a lot of time on the road. I mean, he, he probably makes good money. I'm sure he makes good money, you know? So it's like, all right, for me to get to that level, I'm like, ah, oh, do I really want to do that? Cause it's hard to do something with, unless you really want to. Well, if the end result is something you're looking at that, even if I get to this end result, I know that's going to come with other problems associated with it. Right. Well, then you're kind of fighting across purposes where part of you really doesn't want it because even if I do get it, it's not going to bring me the satisfaction I'm hoping for. Right. So you're in a tough place, Alex. You have, you have too many jobs. You're too successful as a regional performer. You have a happy home life and you got nice kids, a nice wife. What's So there really is nothing left. So. I think uh, now now you've done this podcast, which it has to be one of I know, the, now it's all the highlights. Career is done. Let's put a bow on it. You're absolutely right. It's like, all right, what do I do? Do I just kind of maintain what I'm doing? Because that's that's not really a winning. It's like you got to try to stay vital, right? You'd think so. Well, I've always suggested you getting more into commercials and acting. You have such a great look. Yeah. I always thought you had that young Jerry Lewis kind of comedy, that expressive face and like the human cartoon qualities. Well, you and I will we'll have we'll continue our discussions. You and I have lots of talks, and yeah, yeah, I'm happy to have mentored for you a bit over the years, and yeah, I appreciate yeah. your. I gotta, I gotta give you a shout out just because um, I owe a lot of my success to your help and your advice. You've provided a ton of help over the years. I would definitely not be where I am in my career without your help. There's, there's zero doubt in my mind. You've been one of the most helpful people, if not the most, just throughout the years. And one day it'll all pay off for me. I know it. Yeah, well, <laughs> one day. <laughs> it's my nature. I think you can take some satisfaction of knowing that you've made somebody's life better. I think that's there's value in that with, to helping people. So I can't thank you enough, Dan. I really can't. I appreciate that, Alex. And I appreciate you being on the podcast. How about 
getting us out of here with one of your uh, beatbox raps, and we'll we'll call this a day. And thanks so much for being on Drop Everything. Drop Everything. Oh yeah, yeah in the house. You gotta savor the flavor of my nutty behavior. I'm gonna make your mouth water like a cherry lifesaver. I've concocted a caper to fill my pockets with paper. Do Mr. Rogers a favor, and won't you be my neighbor? Hey, thank you so much. A big hand to everybody who's listening at home. To the Zaniac, Alex Zerby. Thanks, Thanks, Alex. Dan. You're the man, dude. I hope you enjoyed Drop Everything Podcast number 62. My conversation with the wonderful, the amazing, the Zaniac, Alex Zerby. Hey, before you go... Check out the sponsor, the IJA. That, of course, stands for International Jugglers Association. They have festivals, products, and so much more at juggle.org. All right, everybody, go out there, drop everything, except when you're juggling.